For those that are here in the auditorium and watching online, please take your Bibles, if you would, and head over to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 24, and this morning we want to look at verses 10 through 16. Leviticus chapter 24, verses 10 through 16 is a very interesting passage in the book of Leviticus. And of course, those of you that have been with us through our walk through Leviticus up to this point would say, yes, every passage in Leviticus is interesting. Still unsure why you chose it for us this year. But we come to Leviticus 24, 4, 10 to 16, and it is only the second narrative section in the book of Leviticus. The rest of the book of Leviticus is instruction. It is um, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and we've walked through the different types of sacrifices, and we've walked through the different feasts and festivals, and the day of atonement, and all of the rules and regulations for the priests, and the rules and regulations for the people, and all of these realities uh, throughout the book. Now chapter 10, and we'll get to that in just a moment, was a narrative section, but this is the only only the second narrative section in the book of Leviticus. And an interesting narrative section it is. And so follow along with me if you would, and I will read it in your hearing this morning. Leviticus chapter 24, verses 10 through 16. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp, and the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. Then they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shalomith, the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody till the will of the Lord should be clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp the one who cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. And speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. This is the word of God. Gives you all the warms and fuzzies, doesn't it? An interesting passage to be sure. Before we dive in then, what is the theme of this passage? The title for our sermon this morning is Sacred. Sacred. There is at the core of this passage a defiling of, a disregarding of, a treating lightly of the sacred. Treating lightly the weight of God. Treating God as if he does not exist. Treating God as if he is the problem and we are the solution. Sacred, what does that mean? Sacred means that which is connected with God. Sacred is a connection between man and God. Sacred can mean a number of things, but that is certainly one of the main de dictionary definitions, and I think the one that most readily applies to this passage before us. We have mentioned that the theme of the book of Leviticus is the presence of God. How can a holy God 
Dwell in the midst of an unholy people. How does that work? We could back up further and ask the question, why does a holy God want to dwell in the midst of an unholy people? And we know the answer to that is his unending, amazing love for us. And so he goes to great lengths, this entire book, among other portions of the Pentateuch, to explain to us how that's going to work. And so the sacred, treating as holy, treating as weighty, giving due reverence to the one who spoke all things into existence. And the sacred is violated in this text. And there are instructions here for what is supposed to happen when that takes place. Now for some, in order to have a, an experience of the sacred, they need something that is physical and tangible. And so if you walk into a large church building, a basilica perhaps, with stained glass windows and high vaulted ceilings, for some that brings them into the presence of the sacred. For others, they need the, the natural beauty that God has created to bring them into the sacred. And so they might go for a hike in the woods and view a sunrise or a sunset or perhaps stand at the ocean and just be lost in the vastness of the horizon. For some, it's in the evening to look up at the stars and get lost in the magnitude of God's creation. For others, it's spending time with those made in the image of God. And as we speak and converse with those who also worship God, we are brought into the sacred. There's a connection with God, and that what, that's what sacred means. And so in verses 10 through 12, we have in the first place this morning, living with the sacred. What is this story that takes place, this narrative that happens here? In the first place, in verse 10, we have the two main characters. There is a man whose father was an Egyptian, and his mother is Jewish. And we actually know who his mother was because she is named here in the text. And so as they left Egypt and entered into the wilderness, it is possible that this woman came out with her son and left her husband behind. It's possible their husband came with her, but at any rate, there was a marriage between a Jewish woman and an Egyptian man. And when the Israelites spent hundreds of years in Egypt, post-Joseph and prior to the exodus under Moses, the reality is these things are going to happen. And so you have an individual who's not fully Jewish. He's half Jewish. Jewish mother, Egyptian father. And then you have a man of Israel, so a full Jew. Both parents, Jewish, lineage, fully Jewish. What then is the offense in verse 11 in the second place? The Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. And so I do not believe that is what's going on in the text here is just that as these guys were fighting, this individual let slip an OMG. I don't, I don't think that's what's going on here. What ties this whole passage together is the lineage, the, the ancestry, the genetics of this individual. It's mentioned repeatedly in the text. And in verse 16, the sojourner as well as the native are mentioned. And so what's highlighted in the text is that this individual is not a full Israelite. And so what I believe happened is that he blasphemes the name of God. He distances himself from Yahweh. He says to this full Israelite in the camp, 
This is your God, but it's not my God. And actually invokes the name of God as a curse or curses against God. You may trust in him, you may believe in him, but I do not. And of course, you are lesser, therefore. It is used as a distinguishing mark of belief and unbelief. This individual, Egyptian father, Jewish mother, does not actually believe in the one true God. And believes, perhaps, that anybody who does is less than him. His unbelief is correct, and the belief of the nation of Israel is incorrect in his mind. And so he denigrates, he despises, he verbalizes his unbelief in the one true God, and blasphemes against God and curses God's name. This is not just an oops or a, a, a sort of an expression of surprise that oftentimes is used in our culture. What it ought not to be, but that's, there's more going on here than just that he slipped and happened to use the name of God. No, the, he blasphemes the name and he, and he curses the name of God. And, and note that he is kept in custody, and we'll get there in just a moment, but he has ample time to repent. If this was a mistake, if this was an accident, if this was a mere slip of the tongue, he could have and perhaps would have repented. I can't believe I said that. I am so sorry. I repent. Please forgive me. Any of these things. No, there's implied in the text here an obstinacy. There's an arrogance here of this individual. I don't just disbelieve in God. I hate your God. He doesn't represent me he doesn't care about me. I want nothing to do with him. And I stand on that in my arrogant unbelief. And so what is the response of the people? They put him in custody until the will of the Lord should be made clear to them. Why is he put into custody? He's put into custody because of his lineage. The question that they're attempting to resolve is, I know what ought to happen if a native Israelite blasphemes the name of God and curses him. I know what's supposed to happen when a full Israelite does that. What, though, is supposed to happen when a non-Israelite, a half-Israelite in this case, does that? Do the same rules apply across the board? Lastly, I want to bring out from this text that things are not as they ought to be. Notice, where you, if you would, where this takes place in the text. God has just finished giving Moses a full chapter, chapter 23, of all the feasts of Israel, all the ways that they can show their gratitude to the one true God, a whole calendar year of all of these festivals and these times of, of rejoicing and worship and confession and feasting and celebration. And then, as we learned last Sunday, he lets them know about his presence in their midst and his sustaining power in their midst through the lampstand and through the bread. And in the middle of that, this happens. It would be almost like this morning we are gathered here together for worship, corporate worship. And as we're gathered together, we have a plan. We had a plan for this service, a liturgy. And, and we're, we're following that. Everything's going according to plan. We're all worshiping together. And then in the middle of the auditorium, we're just out in the foyer uh, a fight breaks out and interrupts our worship. I'm not sure how we typically deal with interruptions. 
I don't have a very good track record in this regard. One interruption that I distinctly remember is that we had a plan a number of Christmases ago to fly to Ontario to surprise my wife's family on Christmas Day. And so we thought we'll buy our plane tickets for Christmas Day. Not too many people fly on Christmas, and in our case, nobody did, but that's getting ahead of the story. And uh, tickets were a little cheaper, so we made all these arrangements. We kept it on the down low, and we, had, we have a number of friends in Ontario. We had a plan that they were going to drop a van off in the park and fly. We're going to get off of the plane early in the morning. We're going to get in this borrowed vehicle, unbeknownst to any of my wife's family, and we were literally going to ring the doorbell Christmas Day morning. They had no idea we were coming, and we might have had a videographer booked. I don't know, because it was like a Hallmark movie. But anyway, we are going to do this whole big thing. And on our side, we, we had a place to stay in Moncton, and, and we got up early, set our alarms for 3 a.m. or some hour that nobody's supposed to be awake, and we got everybody in the van. We had somebody from Moncton that we knew take our van. Everything was, everything was perfect until our flight got canceled, and we spent Christmas Day in the Moncton airport. If any of you need to know how to navigate the Moncton airport, talk to one of my family. We know every nook and cranny of that airport, and it's not large. Now, what should my attitude have been? Hey, guys, a family day together. Let's spend some time enjoying each other's presence here on this Christmas day. No, no, I, my sanctification was uh, not very evident on that particular day. We did eventually make it to Ontario for Christmas evening and uh, did a little Boxing Day surprise, or I suppose, and, and did, did not work according to plan. How do we handle interruptions? And do we actually view them as interruptions, or do we view them as opportunities? And here, right in the middle of everything just flowing along, this is how you worship God, this is how a holy God dwells in the midst of an unholy people, these are the feasts and festivals, this is the presence of God, this is the, the, the sustaining power of God. Oh, this is great stuff. I got my hands in the air. My eyes are closed. This is amazing stuff. And then, boom, we get interrupted. Or we're involved in, in, in the process of getting closer to God, and we're reading his word, and things are going well, and then, boom, we get some news that we were not expecting. How do we handle those things? Is God sovereign in the good times only, or is God sovereign every time, all the time? It's fascinating to me where this happens. Like, come on, guys, did you have to fight right now inside the camp? Can you take that outside the camp? That's not how life works. Life is messy. Life is full oftentimes of what we would view as interruptions, but it is oftentimes in those moments that the greatest teaching and God can bring us into the greatest truth. Life is not clean and pristine. You note Nadab and Abihu from Leviticus 10, what's going on? They get all the instructions on how to worship God, the clothing, the sacrifices, everything is clean until the sons of Aaron offer unauthorized fire before the Lord and the Lord strikes them down. Now how does that play into a worship service when two people die? And Aaron is not even able to mourn. You have David brings the ark from Shiloh down to Jerusalem. Brand new ox cart. David is dancing all, with all his might. It's a beautiful day of celebration. God's presence in the capital city that David has picked. And then the, ox car, the oxen stumble and it looks like the ark is going to fall and Uzzah puts out his hand and God strikes him dead. Nothing is going to interrupt a worship service like somebody dropping dead. 
these so-called interruptions that happen in our lives, news about our health or someone else's health, loss, grief, pain, suffering, tragedy, all of these things that happen in our lives, do we see them as interruptions or do we see them as opportunities that God gives us to know more of him as we find out more about ourselves? Certainly my time in the Moncton Airport revealed a lot of work to be done in my own heart and life. And so, verses 13 through 16, we have recognizing the sacred. Now God speaks what is to be done about this individual that has blasphemed the name of God and cursed. And so you note in verse four, the first part of verse 14, the camp is sacred ground. This one whose father is an Egyptian and mother is an Israelite is outside of the camp. He comes into the camp and gets involved in this fight. And so Moses is instructed by God, take this individual out of the camp. There is a, a sacredness too. There is an area of connection with God, a physical, geographical space in which we can connect with God in the Old Testament. And that is to be viewed as sacred and to be treated as such. Of course, it is different in the New Testament, and we'll get to there in just a moment. But there is a, a recognition that the camp, the area, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God hovering over the temple, there is a sacredness in the presence of God. Notice that human life is sacred. Notice in 14b, let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Even the individual that blasphemed the one who made him. Even the individual who cursed against the one who loved him was made in the image of God. And there is a process that is to take place here, recognizing even the sacredness of this sinner, this individual who is arrogantly and obstinately opposed to God, even he is made in God's image. Even he has inherent worth and value and dignity, even in his sinning. Sin needs to be taken care of. Sin will be taken care of in this, in this narrative. And yet there is a ceremony to this. There's is not just somebody come up and said, hey, that guy blasphemed the name. God has a process in place. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses can anything be established. And every single person that heard this blasphemy had to not just be witness to it, but actually participate in the consequences for blaspheming. It's one thing to testify in court, it's another thing to quote-unquote flip the switch at the execution. The nation of Israel was called to carry this all the way through because the name of God is that important. But there's a process in place here. Notice that the community is to be sacred. Let all the congregation stone him. This is not just left to a select few who hold the power and decide who lives and who dies and these kinds of things. No, all the congregation is involved in this, and all the congregation needs to be aware that if anybody in the congregation is arrogantly and obstinately opposed to God, that sin always spreads, as we have seen throughout the book of Leviticus. Sin must be handled seriously. Sin must be dealt with seriously, because it's a serious matter. And the whole congregation is involved. This is a community reality. Of course, fourth place, God is sacred. 
Notice how many times it, 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 it talks about the name of the Lord. And it's not just misusing the title for him. His name is synonymous in the Old and New Testament with his character. Jesus says to his disciples, whatever you ask in my name. So what does he mean? That as long as we close our prayers with in Jesus' name, he'll give us everything that came before that. That's not what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. Praying in Jesus' name means praying according to Jesus' character. Praying with that which is in line with his will. Praying those things that are in line with who he is. And so God's name is synonymous with who he is. So the blasphemy has taken place not just sort of misnaming God or using his name inappropriately per se, but more so the blaspheming him and who he is. When he blasphemes the name in verse 16, capital N. Capital N also in verse 11. God is sacred. And notice in the last place, all are to recognize the sacred. The sojourner, verse 16b, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Now what do we note here? We note in the first place, all are under the blessing of God's law in this context. All can be under the blessing of God's presence. God makes it very clear that anyone who is in the camp, anyone who is a part of the tribe of Israel, be he native-born Jewish or not, benefits from the blessing of his presence. We know this from the beginning, all the way back in Genesis, where it says that, that Abraham is going to bless the nations. You can trace that thread all the way through Scripture, and it ends in Revelation, where it says every people from every tribe, tongue, kindred, and nation, from every ethnos, will be glorifying God. At the end of time, everybody, people from every different type of humanity, not that there are different races, only one race, the human race, but different ethnicities, cultures, languages, all these individuals will be there praising God collectively. Yet, if you are under the benefits and the blessings of the law, you are also equally under the consequences of the law. And so this individual, and the reason why this is sort of a, a question that the nation of Israel has is, he's not fully Israelite, so what do we do in this situation? And God makes it clear. Everyone can have the benefit of being under the blessings of my presence, but if you blaspheme against that, disbelieve that, disregard that, treat that as light, you are also then to bear the weight of the consequences of that equally whether fully Israelite or not. We come to their third point then this morning, and that is restoring the sacred. And where do our minds go first? Before we turn into the New Testament, I think the first place that our minds go is this. All right, so God's name, God's character, the reality that God is and is sovereign over all things, that's an important thing. And his holiness and his goodness and his grace and all of these things, his righteousness, those are important things. And so what is then the way in which we best recognize the sacred? I think oftentimes our minds go to, well, when we need to have some rules around here. We need, we need to have some structure. If we're going to do this, we've got to do this right. This is important. And so we've we got to have a list. 
We've got to have fences around things. We've got we to gotta take this seriously. And let me say this. We think that legalism takes God seriously. But I am here to contend with you this morning that legalism does not take God seriously enough. We think that the way to live in light of the sacred, we think that the way to recognize the sacred and restore the sacred is to try really, really hard. And what that actually shows in our hearts and lives is a devaluing of who God is. Do we honestly believe that we can attain perfection? Do we honestly believe that we can fulfill this task that God has given us? Indeed, one of the points of the law was to draw us to Christ, Paul says. If we take the weight of the God who spoke all things into existence seriously, then we'll take seriously the reality that we can't make ourselves holy. And yet, why is it the first thing that comes into our mind when we think of recognizing and living in light of the sacred is, is, is we gotta, we got to do more around here. we gotta, we got to shape up. So follow me, if you would, to the New Testament, to Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Now, Luke has a unique narrative here. Matthew, Mark, and John all have the narrative of Mary who anoints Jesus for burial late in his earthly ministry just before his crucifixion. But in Luke 7, there's a unique narrative and there's some confusion because the Pharisee in both cases, or I should say the Pharisee's name is Simon and the leper's name is Simon and the, there's some confusion here. But this is a unique narrative and there's something going on here that I think will help us understand how God actually restores the sacred. The restoration of the sacred does not come as a result of human effort. The restoration of the sacred comes as a result of God's effort on behalf of individuals who can't fully recognize or live in light of the sacred. So let us pick up the narrative then in verse 36. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, this is not a designation the Pharisee gives her, but one that Luke does, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. And which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he, Jesus, said to her, the woman, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. What is the point then of this story, this narrative in the New Testament? I think in the first place, we must recognize that our sin is great. We're not told a lot about this woman, but we have some, uh, some key elements from the text that imply certain things. She's known in the city as a sinner. She also has a very valuable alabaster flask of ointment, perfume. She has money. Given the fact that she has money and she's known in town as a sinner, it is quite possible that this woman is, or at least was, a prostitute. It's not said that in the text, but there is implications there. She wears the weight of her sin daily. And yet, she believes that she cannot justify herself. That as she stands in the presence of the sacred, she has no hope. She has no ability in herself based on what she has done and who she is to ever redeem herself in the presence of a thrice holy God. But she believes with all of her heart that Jesus can. That he can forgive her. And she weeps. Her response in the face of grace comes out of her understanding of the depth of her depravity. There is nothing in this text that is sexual. This is a woman who is overcome with the weight of her sinfulness but overcome more by the gloriousness of God's grace. Contrast that in the second place then with the two responses that we see in this text. What do we know about Simon? Simon is a Pharisee. He should know the law. He should know the word. And yet, there's indications in the text as well that he doesn't really believe that Jesus is who he says he is. In fact, he may believe that he is able to put Jesus on trial. In that culture, hospitality rules dictated that when someone came over to your house, you took care of them, oftentimes better than your own family. And so at the very least, what should have happened when Jesus entered Simon's house, especially as a religious leader in the community, he should have at the very least had his feet washed. Perhaps to show extra honor to a special guest, one might anoint their head with oil and greet them with a kiss. Jesus is quite clear with Simon that none of those things happened when he entered Simon's house. It may be implied from the text that Simon the Pharisee believes that he is the one who is going to judge Jesus. As a courtesy, as a leader of the synagogue, I must have this religious teacher into my home, but I'm going to reserve judgment on him to see if he really is up to my standard. 
And so I will not extend to him the common courtesies of hospitality. And it seems that his suspicions are confirmed because he says, if this man were a prophet, not even the Messiah, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him, that this is not good. This does not meet with my high standards of the sacred. So Jesus tells him a little story. And Simon gets the story, but he doesn't seem to get the application. Jesus certainly in the story lets us know that there are different uh, amounts of debt that are paid off. But I think there's something deeper here. It is not necessarily that this woman's sins are greater than the sins of Simon. But it is certainly true that she recognizes her sin and he does not. And so to the degree that we believe that we earned or deserve God's grace in our lives, to that same degree, we love him just that much less. We are that little bit less grateful. We praise him just that little bit less. When we sit here this morning, do we recognize and understand that there is nothing we could do to make ourselves holy? There is no amount of prayers that we could pray, money that we could give, good things that we could do to earn God's favor and grace. When is the last time that we have been broken in the presence of God? just out of sheer thankfulness and gratitude for his grace, his amazing grace to us. The individual in the camp in Leviticus is obstinate in the face of holiness, is arrogant in the face of glory, believes himself to be God. I will judge what is good and what is holy and what is right. I know better. I'm smarter. I'm better. This woman is completely broken by her sin, but more broken that God would love her and that Jesus would offer forgiveness. The path to restoring the sacred is not through human effort. The path to restoring the sacred is a recognition that Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. It is only by his grace. As we come to this day and we open the service with the thanksgiving to those who have served on our behalf, we ought to be thankful and grateful. But how much more grateful ought we be to the one who died in our place? Do we understand and recognize the depth of our sin? And when is the last time we stood under the weight of God's amazing 
grace. Arrogance and Christianity are mutually exclusive. Pride and a follower of Jesus Christ can't coexist. It is only as we recognize, truly recognize, the weight of the sacred that we actually see how sinful we are, that we begin to appreciate the immensity of the grace of God. And so our response this morning is, do we recognize the sacred? If we think that because we do more, or we have the right theology, or we go to the best church, or any of these things, that somehow that is how we best recognize the sacred, we have missed it by a large mark. Pride does not only exist in those who reject God. Pride also exists in those who think that they can earn their way into relationship with him. Self-righteousness is equally as deadly as disbelief. And so as we come to the table this morning, my prayer is that we would be overwhelmed by the grace of God. Jesus deserves all the praise and the honor and glory. It is only because of him that we can stand in God's presence. Something the one in Leviticus did not recognize, but something that the woman in Luke 7 did, and many have. And my prayer is that you have as well this morning. Let's go to him in prayer as we prepare our hearts together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together this morning and have hearts of gratitude. Sometimes it feels like the farther away from our conversion we get, the less we are thankful for it. We sometimes believe that you got a good deal when you got us as one of your children. Comparison is an ever-present danger. And as we get farther along the path, we can, if we are not careful, slide away from being in awe of you and your grace and begin to subtly slide into becoming in awe of our goodness and our amazing intellect and talents and gifts. Father, maturity ought to bring us more humility, not less. And as your servant, the Apostle Paul, recognized, as he writes, some of his earlier writings, he is the least of the apostles, and some of his later writings, he is the least of the saints, and in one of his last letters, he calls himself the chief of sinners. This is not to beat himself up and to not recognize your grace in his life and your designation of him as a saint, but it is to give you all the praise and the glory and to take none for himself. Father, in the presence of the sacred, we ought to be marked by humility. I pray that is the case in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.